Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Tramia Rovers, Everton, Aston Villa, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Carlisle United, Northampton Town, Walsall and Scarborough defender Derek Mountfield about his Focus On interview for Shoot Magazine from 1984-85. You can find the original interview on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Derek Neil Mountfield. Date of birth, September 1962, born in Liverpool. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have another of my um, childhood Everton heroes on. Um, I'm getting to make a bit of a habit of this. Um, are you okay? Everything okay with you? Everything's fine, yes. I'm currently in the process of, of moving over to Huddersfield. So I've been busy decorating an apartment for the last couple of weeks. I'm just about finished now. I've just got some um, bigger work to do. But all in all, I'm pretty good despite the the crap year we've had so far, uh, I'm in pretty good spirits. Good. Right, let's get cracking with this old focus on profile from Shoot in the 1984-85 season, which for both of us um, was incredible considering what Everton achieved and the style in which they did it. Um, that team is remembered as one of the greats now, but it was only 12 to 18 months or so earlier that it was struggling badly with Howard Kendall under intense pressure. Now, I went back through the stats for the late 83, early 84 period, um, where everything began to turn around. And I'm sure it's no coincidence that roughly at that time, a certain Derek Mountfield starts becoming a regular on the team sheet. Yes. Um, if you look back to that time, I didn't get in the side until November time. And then Mark Higgins, unfortunately, got his injury and I got a regular spot. But I think Peter Reid got in one game, Andy Gray came in the following game, and I came in the game after that. So the three of us made a bit of an impact. Everyone remembers Andy Gray, Peter Reid's impact, but uh, tends to forget about my, my impact. But uh, I was a young kid playing for the team of sports all my life and enjoying every single, minute, uh, every single minute of it. But I must be honest, the first month and a half, six weeks in the team were, were pretty dire. Um, if you go back to that spot, you've probably checked the, the Christmas period, 83. We got booed off the pitch after two very poor games at Goodison Park and got battered at Wolves on the Boxing Day. We were 17th, 18th at the table, playing absolute garbage football. Uh, and it looked like there was only one, one avenue. The fans were baying for Howard Kendall's head. Um, the board tended to get the sack of the board, but the board stuck with Howard. Uh, we went to Birmingham City away on the 2nd of January in that famous silver kit we had um, all ready to go on the pitch 10 minutes before kickoff as the knock on the door and the referee says sorry lads you can't wear that kit it's going to clash with their blue shirts under the floodlights to which some bright spark chips in okay referee are we in skins tonight he went no no and he brought in Birmingham City's away kit which I always say is a classic Evan away kit was the amber blue amber we wore that away kit 1-2-0 and didn't lose a game for the best part of 20 games. So is it Birmingham City's kit that helped us, or was it Inchi's uh, equaliser at Oxford? I'm not sure, but uh, for the first six weeks of my tenure at it was a very poor start. But after that, after December, the, uh, January the 2nd, 84, it was just onwards and upwards. And 
very proud of what we did and very pleased to be part of it because deep down I'm still a blue. Uh, well, speaking of kits, um, if we look at the profile from Shoot, there you are wearing that iconic uh, Lacoste Sportif kit with with the Hafnia sponsor, which for many people who don't know was a, was a Danish canned meat company. Um, and as you said, being a childhood Everton fan, it was the the dream pulling that shirt on. Uh, and you know, it's interesting having seen the Howard's Way film. Well quite a number of times but anybody who hasn't seen it there's a lovely foot lovely um part in it with you up in your loft pulling out i I think it's the shorts isn't it from one of the cup finals and do you you know and and just looking at and thinking how on earth did anybody manage to squeeze in not only squeeze into those kits but play top division football in any of that gear it, it was interesting. You look at the styles in those days and it, everyone had the, the, the tight shirts and the short shorts. And um, we just, in those days, it was just, you had, I think, I think those days we had two pair of size 38s, which with sheets and rats tend to grab every time. If, if the shark didn't get them, the rest of them just had basic medium shorts that fit where they touched. Um, I used them shorts in, my, in a few dinners at Jota and speeches. I'm actually wearing more of your boxer shorts now than doing in the match day shorts in the 80s, but they were great days. Uh, and that shirt, um, the cup final shirt, I wore once in the final. And the reason we were all so slim in those days is that shirt's actually lined with fleece. Um, nowadays, they wear moisture-wicking clothes to keep themselves dry. And we had a fleece-lined shirt in the cup final at Wembley 84. And I tell you, it was blinking hot that day as well. Um, well, uh, you've named Everton great Colin Harvey as the biggest influence on your career. Uh, and so many players who passed through Everton in those days have said similarly complimentary things about Colin. Uh, what was it about him that made him so important to the club as a coach? Because obviously, you know, his, his impact as a player is well known, especially when you consider the, the, Holy, the famous Holy Trinity with, with Howard Kendall and Alan Ball. But what was, the, what was so special about him as a coach and what he did for that team that, of course, Howard Kendall gets so much of the praise uh, for? It wasn't just what he did as, as, as for the team. It's what he did for each individual player. You know, I joined Everton from Tramway and I had Johnny King who gave him an opportunity. Then Brian Hamilton came and he gave him a, a debut in the team and then Howard signed me. And I spent the first season um, doing a lot of work with Colin Harvey um, with the reserve side. You know, we train with the first team and then twice a week in the afternoon, he'd bring the, the, the reserves back or the younger players and work on, on each one of them individually as, as the session progressed. So he'd work on that strengths and make them stronger, a weakness and make them, to make them a strength. You know, I remember spending hours and hours with Simon Steele, the goalkeeper, taking goal kicks. And I was trying to out-jump Mick Ferguson, who's six foot six, to, to improve my head. In the next session, he'd have Alan Ains go on an air van running at me and I'm doing one-on-one and trying to stay in my feet and show him away from goal. He made me a better player. But what he did, he did it in a fun way. It was never a chore to play up to work under Colin. You you asked Kevin Ratcliffe, Gabby Stevens, Ted Richardson, three, four, three or four players in that time. They'll always praise Colin Harvey. But he was very, very good at what he did. A very calm demeanour, a very approachable man. And when Howard used to watch the reserves, he was always impressed the way we used to press, press, press. And I think when Colin got brought into the first team, that was part of the turnaround and when we started to pick up as well, because he he introduced us, or Everton, we started pressing a lot higher. People now say, oh, don't teams press very high now? We were doing that in the 80s. You look at some of the videos from the kickoffs, and we're right on, right on top of teams, pushing up high, Sharpie, Andy Inchie, 
followed by Reedy Brace. We're all pushed up. So Colin introduced that. I think Howard took that on board and we, we used it great in our, in our side. We had players who were prepared to work for the team, for each other. And when you're all on the same, on the same page, it's so much easier to play football. But Colin himself was, was a, a gentleman, you know, a fantastic footballer, but a fantastic coach. In the warm-ups, we used to do a two-touch keep-you-up circle. And Colin never, ever did any running because he never dropped the ball. His first touch was immaculate. His second touch put someone else in trouble. He was just a great footballer still when he was coaching Everton. But more importantly, to this day, he's still a fantastic gentleman. Um, and whenever we get together, we see him. We're always full of praise for him, always talking to him. And he has a reputation at Everton on the coaching side, even going through the Wayne Rooney's in recent years, who, who will say nothing but great things about Colin Harvey, a top, top person. Now, you've made, named your favourite players like this. Uh, childhood was Derby County and England centre-half Roy McFarland, and current as Peter Wyth, who at that time was the spearhead of Aston Villa's attack, and of course also from Liverpool. Uh, and the reason for choosing uh, him was because he was a tremendous competitor, always ready for a battle. Uh, and that's how centre-forwards were in those days, weren't they? Everyone had a bruising target man up front who would be there to try and soften you guys up at the back. Um, apart from Peter Witt, who else did you relish or fear coming up against? It's hard to say. You, you, you try and do the job to your best ability. Certain players who made life incredibly difficult for you. I always say that the best combination I played against was, was Russian Dalgleish because they were almost telepathic. They, their understanding was superb and they, they could both score goals and and then Mark Hughes had the ability to bring the ball down and control it and then score spectacular goals. But the hardest person I think I played against was Mick Harford. Not because it was always a tough game, because he'd leave his foot in, he'd elbow you, he'd dig you in the ribs. But in those days, whatever Mick, Mick or, or Rushy or Kenny or Hughes gave me, I gave it back and they knew they'd got to get something back off me and I knew it was coming back to me. And that's how it went in those days. But you know, Mick Harford was very, very tough. I had a couple of games against Jürgen Klinsmann, early 90s for Villa. You know, the book, John Fashioner was a tough character. You know, you look at players around in those days, you know, Lineker was a great footballer, a great, a great goal scorer, played against him before he came to Everton. And then when he went, he left Everton. You know, so, but, but Mick Harford for me, pound for pound, was, was, was aggressive. He was mean. He was nasty. But he was also a very, very good footballer. And I did spend some time in mixed company about 18 months ago at an Everton match. And we just sat laughing. I walked up and said, I owe you this, mate. I nearly punched him in the face. And we just laughed about things because in those days, it was a physical game. It was, you know, you got the bumps, you got the bruises, you, you take your head up with a bandage, you, you put a plaster over the cut on your nose or your face and you carry on. Uh, and Mick Arthur was tough. Peter Wirth, I had a couple of games against Peter Wirth. Um, when I was asked to bid on the semi-final of the league, the league Cup. And he was, again, a very, very competitive player. The bigger the player for me, the better, because I like the, the, the big challenges and the fights and the battles. The little players, that the Tony Cotties and those were, were more difficult because they make the runs. You, you didn't want to chase them down the channels because you know they'd do you. But the big strapping centre forward is what I liked. I, I, I used to send the, the Pat Nevins and the Tony Cotties over to, over to Rats and you can have them carefully. He's a big fella to me. Yeah, Mick, you mentioned Mick Harford there, and I think he, he played a sort of a, a supporting role in one of the 
probably one of the most famous pictures of you as a player, didn't he? The from the nineteen eighty five FA Cup semi final against Luton, where you know you scored the winning goal, you, you nodded it into the corner of the net. But of course, you know your, your big moment in the spotlight. There's you with a great big shiner, courtesy of Mister Harford. Mick left his mark on me more than one occasion. That day, he'd, he'd done my arm, my nose was broken, my, my knee was throbbing away. I missed the next two games with a bad knee. Uh, but that was it. I got I got the last laugh in the end. I got the winning goal and took us to Wembley. And I still get a lot of grief off Luton fans when uh, anything comes up regarding that because I think I'm probably the most hated player first in, in Luton. And I've only been there to play football. Sheedy curls it. Mount Hill's there. It's a goal! Um, well, the interview uh, lists your honours, which also form the replies to the most memorable match and biggest disappointment questions, which respectively are winning the FA Cup in 1984 against Watford and losing the Milk Cup the same year against Liverpool after a replay. What are your abiding memories of the two finals, uh, which obviously came within a couple of months of each other? Uh, well, first, the Milk Cup final. It was it was Everton's first Wembley appearance in seven or eight years and it happened to be the Merseyside derby. And, and that day will go down in in my memory as, as, as a really great occasion. 100,000 Merseyside people singing singing songs, absolutely bucketing down with rain, um, soaked through to the skin. And you look back and we had a debatable handball, which VAR would have given in the current system. Um, but it wasn't given. Um, and I remember finishing the game at 100 nil nil, walking up the stairs, shaking hands with, I think it was the crack, it might have been the Queen Mum, I can't remember now. And then walking around the pitch uh, with the two teams together and the ground just singing Merseyside, Merseyside. Um, we get changed in shower, go back to the to the hotel and come home the following day for, a, for the replay on the Wednesday at Main Road. And, and we lost it. But what it did give us was, although it was a major disappointment at the time, it gave us belief that we were on a getting closer and closer to Liverpool at the time. It only been two or three months since our really bad spell over the Christmas period, but we'd really moved on. And then getting to Wembley for the Milk Cup final gave us that impetus to actually get there again two or three months later for the uh, Epic Cup final, which for me, I always say is... is the greatest occasion. It was my first major trophy. It was Everton's first trophy in 14, 15 years. And you could see that you see the Howard Way film, the, some of the footage of the of the fans when we drive at Wembley Way. You could just see what it means to the fans to be back at Wembley and then to win it was just an amazing feeling. And I didn't really understand what we'd done until you actually walk up the stairs and someone shakes your hand and puts a blue box in your hand and you go, Wow, that's the FA Cup. I've won it. And it, it, it sort of hits you very, very suddenly. And I just remember having two or three days of, of complete and utter ecstasy. Um, the, the, the night that night in London was brilliant. The, the journey home was superb. Coming out from Lime Street with all the fans on the train, getting off at Broadway and doing the open top bus tour. That's what you want to do more and more. And I think the Milk Cup final gave us that belief we could actually get there again and do it. 
And, and after the, the FA Cup final, it was just, for me, it was just, we had a massive, massive belief in ourselves. We didn't see what was coming the following season, um, but the belief was there, the understanding was there. And after a shaky start the following season, we, we proved how good we could be by playing, I think, some of the best football I've been involved in in my career. Yeah. Well, your international honours were in England under 21 and a B team cap. But were you surprised, considering how well you were doing in that 84-85 season in particular, that you never got a full cap? I wouldn't say I was, I was surprised. I was disappointed. It, it's probably the biggest disappointment in my career. I don't have any regrets. You can't have regret playing football. But I'm extremely disappointed that I never even got a call up to the squad. Um, I'm playing in a certain team that was, you know, won three cup finals, played in three cup finals on the bounce. Won, won a league, was second, and I was scoring goals, but I never got a single cap. Um, the the call-up was just a call-up would have been nice to to have gone and experienced a, a full international setup and training and everything else. But hey, if if Bobby Robson at the time thought the players in front of me were better than me, so be it. But it is for me the biggest disappointment in my career that I never got the chance to to pull on the England shirt for a full international cap. But I do have the privilege, the honour of at least having a couple of England caps. I did wear the, the three lines on the on the chest, but a full cap or a full appearance would have been really nice. Well, Derek, we'll get back to the football in a bit because it's time to look at some of the miscellaneous other stuff they quizzed you about for shoot in 1985. Um, uh, so at the time, at the time, you lived in a semi-detached three-bedroomed house in Morton on the Wirral, which coincidentally is where my auntie also lived at the time uh, and is just up the road from my family's home in, on Bidston Hill. So it's a bit of a small world, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I assume... did live in a three-bedroom and I very quickly moved into Heswell um, just after the middle of 80, 84, 85 series. I moved into, into Heswell from there. Yeah. Um, and you were driving a Toyota Celica 2.0 XT. Uh, and anybody who listens to this podcast knows I know absolutely zilch about cars. So I had to look it up on Google and it looks very mid 80s by design. Do you remember that one? I remember it. It was, um, if you remember the Knight Rider, um, Michael Hasselhoff, it was a, it was a black Celica uh, with pop-up headlights and everything. It was, it was the in thing at the time. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed driving it. It was, wasn't a great, Fast car, but it was a very uh, smart-looking car. It didn't last more than an eighteen months, but it changed it anyway. <laughs> um, and the nickname again, which is very specific to the time, was Tav after England cricketer Chris Tavaray. By, of course, the, the feet, the main feature. Yeah, I don't remember everyone calling me Tav. I was called it one once or twice as at the ground, but I don't remember ever saying I was nicknamed Chris Tav or Tav. When I was at school, I was nicknamed Manny. M-E-N-N-Y, because I was always called Derek Manfield in school. So I got the nickname Manny in school, but it never came through into the football world. But it, it, it was always Degs, your big lump, your, your donkey, your dozy, your, your come on, whatever it was. But Chris Tavare was mentioned three or four times. So that's probably why I said that. Um, but it's one of them. I don't remember being called Tav very, very often, but it was normally Degs uh, or Mountie. Certain players call me Mountie. But, uh, you know, nicknames tend to stick, but that one hasn't stuck, pleased, I'm pleased to say. 
Um, there's also a lot of references to golf in this profile. Um, and having seen through some of your posts on Twitter, you're still out and about on a regular basis playing. And of course, it was a it was a favourite hobby of loads of footballers back in the day. Not so much now, I'm, I'm sure. Um, you must have, you know, li- living in Morton and then Heswell, you know, there's a hell of a lot of great courses um, that you must have played back then. Yeah, I didn't play a great deal of golf. I just enjoyed getting out in the fresh air and, and playing golf. I play an awful lot of golf now. Obviously, I'm not involved in any, any sport at the moment. So exercise with my new knee and my bad ankle is basically just walk around a golf course, smacking a little white ball into places you shouldn't go. But I do enjoy it. But in those days, I played a lot of golf with, with a couple of friends of mine from school. Um, and I met a, a lad um, as I was joining Tramia who... He used to be at Doncaster over like called Peter Bowden. Um, he only played about half a dozen games, a dozen games at Doncaster. And we're still friends now. And we still play golf regular today. And that's 40-odd years later. Um, but golf for me was one of those games. That I, in football, if I was rubbish, Mr. Kendall put the shirt number five up and, put, and take me off and put something else on. And when you're playing golf, if you're rubbish, it's down to you to turn yourself around and make it, make it better. So I do enjoy the fresh air. I do enjoy walking around the golf course. Uh, I do enjoy the competitive side of golf, but for me, it's just about the social aspect. I love chatting, chatting to people, walking around the golf course, talking about things, finding out about other people, then going to the bar, having a couple of glasses of wine, and then coming home and crashing out. But golf for me was great. I uh, didn't play a lot in those days, but do play an awful lot more now. Uh, well, in the music question, uh, you've given the nod to Hall and Oates and Elton John as your favourites in 1985, and poor old El- poor old Elton, of course. Uh, again, going back to 1984 and Everton's win over Watford in the FA Cup final, uh, and you guys spoiling his uh, big day. Um, did you get to meet him at all, either before or after that that final? No, I didn't. Um, he came on the pitch before the game and shook all our hands, but I didn't really have any contact with him. I have met him once since at a concert in Birmingham at the NEC, very, very briefly. Um, but my musical taste, I, I've got a varied taste. I've got no specific, uh, I didn't have, at the time either have no specific type of special person I listen to a music or, or group. I, I'm a multi-listening person. I listen to a lot of different types of music. Um, but Elton John brought the wrong song out at the wrong time in 84 with uh, everyone singing the blues or whatever his, whatever his song was. We soon changed it around at the uh, cup final celebration dinner to make sure that we were singing the blues and he was uh, very blue himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, let's get back to the football. And um, your ambition for 1985, I think you pretty much fulfilled it, was to help Everton become really successful again. So you, you can tick the box on that one. Um, it was such a great side and it was such a settled team, something you don't see in football these days, of course, with squad rotation and, and so on. Uh, because it was it was such a really well-blended team, wasn't it, that Howard put together over that three or four-year period where Everybody had their specific roles and it just really worked well together as as players. But I think what's brilliantly documented in Howard's way, and I've banged on about here on this podcast a number of times, is it's great to hear about the camaraderie between all of you back then. Um, but it's also brilliant to see you all together in different sections of the film. Um, and of course, there's all the events that, that came that happened around the, the release of the film, what was that, two years ago, pretty much now, that you're all still seem to be great friends and great buddies. And I think that when you think, even even considering 
how good you all were as players. Perhaps do you think that 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 was that particular team's greatest strength was the relationship that you all had? Yeah, in a way it was. Um, there was a great team spirit. Howard believed in the team ethic, the team spirit, the working together. It's well documented about his finding people for getting booked or getting sent off or being late for training and all those fines put into a kitty. And twice a, twice a season, three times a season, we come in on Monday morning and say, right then, boys, tomorrow it's a Chinese in town. You know, don't bring your cars, get a taxi. And then we go into the Chinese, whether it's Southport or Liverpool, and the banquet would be set up for 30 people with all the food and all the drinks. And we'd all just tuck in, we'd all be laughing and joking, singing songs, and, and then at the far end, Big never have a chicken and chips and a cup of tea. You know, but that's what it was. Even though we had that, he was still there being part of it. And we had a with great understanding with each other. Now, I... I developed and understood what Kevin needed and what, what Kevin knew I would do. I had Gabby Stevens to one side and I had Reedy in front and I had the big fella behind me. We knew that if we went over the top, Big never come and do some something spectacular like he did all the time. You know, we got play football writers play the year award and you know he made he made saves look simple. Um, he didn't gloat about things. He just whatever what he did, he did absolutely superbly all the time and. But that team just had a blend and a balance. I think Howard's, Howard's ability to find a, the correct balance in the team is, is one of his strongest things from that era because everybody understood and everyone knew what they had to do. And, and bringing Pat Van Den Auen down the left-hand side, release Kevin Sheedy to be more of attacking, less defensive-minded, which wasn't his strength. And then, unfortunately, Adrian Heath is, is the forgotten man of the group who was absolutely flying until that horrible tackle by Brian Moore with the, that ruined his season. But then Andy Gray came in and, and Andy Gray and Sharpie developed into a fantastic partnership. You know, so all over the field of play, you know, that pass from Paul Bracewell against Sunderland that released Trevor Stephen down the right. We could do we're doing that in training day after day. We were doing all those things and the things we did in training eventually came into the field of play. And we, we we did things in the field of play that I still look right now and think, I don't see teams doing that now. But we were doing it 25, 30 years ago. Uh, it was a great blend, a great group of lads. And that Howard's Way night was the first time we'd virtually all, there's only Kevin Ratcliffe missed it. The first time we'd been together as that many numbers for, well, probably since the cup final in 85, um, when we, we, we finished off that one. It's so nice to be back together and so nice to see the lads. A lot of them looking really well at the moment, really healthy, really fit. We've had our injury problems, our health problems, but the banter that night was just absolutely superb. And we're hoping they're going to do another one in the near future. So we do a Howard's Way 2 and we'll do it again and have even more fun. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. Um, looking back at those six or seven years, um, what would you say was the highest and lowest point for you during the time at Everton? My highest point at Everton, it's, it, again, it's for me, it's hard to say. I look back at the FA Cup final win with, with so much pleasure because it started us. But then we became league champions. We're the only team ever from Everton to compete in a European final and win it. I managed to score double figures in the season. I've got so many highs. I, I can't really pick one, but I'll always harp back to the 84 Cup final. But then for me... I feel my greatest achievement at times is is getting into them shorts, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> how it is. 
what happened to you after you left Everton, Derek? And what have you been up to since hanging up your boots? Because uh, you've done quite a number of interesting things. Yeah, I, I left Everton, went to Villa, had three and a half great years down there. And then Big Ron came in, Barakuta came in and brought his own players in. So I left, had a couple of years at Villa, got released disappointingly by Graham Taylor when we were discussing new contracts. He suddenly changed his mind. And then I went from Birmingham, where, where I was living, for the season, travelling to Carlisle, um, where I won another league title, believe it or not, and got to Wembley again in 1994-95. Finished up at Walsall, then had a short spell at Scarborough before the Homie boots up in 99-2000. Had a brief spell as a manager at Cork in Ireland, which didn't really work out. And then at the age of 40, for some really, really odd reason, I went to university through the PFA and got myself a sports science degree. Um, if you'd have said to me when I left school in 79 at the age of 16, 24 years later, I'd be going to university, I'd have, I'd have laughed at your face. But the three years at university really opened, opened my eyes to what I should have known when I was playing football. Uh, but I didn't because I, I put my hands and we did at the time. The people who looked after us, I learned more in those three years than... A, than some, I think some of them even knew um, because in those days you, your manager did train everyone at the same pace. You all, you all ran the same distance, might have been different times, but now everything's done. And as I learned back in early 2000, everything's done using heart rate monitors and you, you, you do things that were all different people, metabolisms, heart rates, flexibility, strength. So you can't do things all the same. That's why so many training sessions now in the, in the pro world are, are different because everyone does so much. But then when I left that, I went into schools and became a, a sports coach um, in the local Whittle Authority area. And, and then was asked to do some special needs work. Uh, so I took it on board and I became the lead coach on the Whittle for special educational needs development coaching. Um, and I did that for... 15 years, 16 years before I, I retired last year. Uh, last year was my last year. Um, and due to that work, it put me in touch with Lorimer Menemy at a dinner for Sir Tom Finney in 2009. And at the time, Lottie was the chairman of the Special Olympics Great Britain. So since 2009, I've been involved with the Special Olympics of Great Britain, more so with the Northwest region. And that's... Um, I call it the Forgotten Olympics, the, Power, the Olympics, the Paralympics all get funding, but the specials don't get any funding at all. It's a charity. They've got to raise money to represent their area or the country. Uh, and I've really enjoyed, these are all af af athletes with learning difficulties and, and social difficulties and, and Down syndrome. And when I see those, those athletes competing, um, it, it brings me so much joy and pleasure because you know, I was lucky. I, I had everything when I played football. I could, I, and these people have to work and do backpacks and sponsored walks and cycles to raise money to pull on the England shirt or pull on the Northwest jersey. So my my aim with the Special Olympics, especially in the Northwest, is to raise people's awareness of what the Special Olympics are uh, and what they mean to the people who take part in it. Uh, and I, I'm disappointed that this year Liverpool should have hosted the 2021 National Summer Games. Where they bid for it 18 months or so ago, two years ago, won the bid. But unfortunately, in the last six months, they've, they've had to withdraw the bid um, since the COVID era because they can't get... I think I don't know the exact reasons. I'm not going to go into it, but I was disappointed. I think the people in Merseyside would have absolutely loved 
to watch these athletes compete. So my life has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, I've enjoyed every minute the last 20 years as well. The special needs work has been a joy to help work with people who can't communicate and you're having to do certain bits of sign language to people who, who have very difficult difficulties in walking and moving. So you work on their gait and the, and the style of movement and the walking and the, the running and everything else. To, to some of these these kids who are amazing athletes, you know. So we've done all sorts of sports in the school, from football through to golf to tennis to cricket. Um, just a few of the sports we've done, and I've had a wonderful time. But as I said, on the wrong side of 58 now, I'm fast approaching the bus pass. Um, so I thought I'd give it a break and give us someone else a chance to, to take it on board. But I look back at the last 20 years with as much pride as I did the previous 20 years playing football in a different, different way, the pride is. But if I can help anybody with, you know, help within the special needs education world and disabilities, I will do because it's it's been a part of my life for about 15 years now. And I have anyone who gets the opportunity to work in that sector would say the same. It, it gives you so much joy. Um, the joy I've had in the last 15, 20 years has been, I said, just as much as I had in the previous time playing football. Now, if the chance came uh, to go back in time to 1985 and the man in this shoot profile, what one piece of advice would you give him? Well, what would I give myself the best, the best bit of advice? Um, I think I'd say try and soak it in, try and remember it, try and savour it a bit more. Because in those days, we just went from a Saturday midweek, Saturday midweek, Saturday. And you, you really look back and you you don't remember exactly what you did at times because it, it was thick and fast. It was football, 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 football. I just wish I'd remembered and taken a bit more of going to Wembley. I just wish these things were, were on a Zoom call now doing a podcast. Mom, I'm on my mobile phone. I wish I'd had a mobile phone in the 80s to, to have taken on the pitch before the game and taken pictures while I'm in the ground in the changing rooms. I see so many pictures now of players celebrating with trophies and mobile phones and GoPros on them. I've got very, very few pictures of me playing football. Um, I've got very few pictures of me holding trophies. Uh, and I look at the photographs now you get on, on online and on, on the Instagram and the Twitter feeds from the clubs and the, the national papers and Sky TV. It's a different game now. And I just wish I'd saved a bit more and soaked a bit more in. But I, I, I will say one thing. I loved every single minute of it. And you can't take it away from me that I, I did what I did. I loved every single second of my time, whether it was a tramway at Everton, Villa, Wolves, Carlisle, Walsall, Scarborough. I loved every single minute of my time. And it was a privilege to be able to say I played football, but it was an absolute joy to put on the blue shirt at Everton for those six years. Uh, the best six years of my life because I went from the terraces when the mates were still there when I was playing for them and I pulled on the blue shirt and came out that tournament to Z cars and it was absolutely fantastic. Brilliant. Derek, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, really great fun. I hope you've enjoyed going back through this old profile as well. Oh, I, I'm this, Mark, because I said, I look at some of those, the questions that were there. Half the time I said, we, we didn't answer off the question. They got the basics and they just threw things in on top of it, I think. I don't remember doing an interview for that one beforehand, but it's always for me, it's always nice talking about the career because 
So many people want to know about it. And every time I do a podcast or speak to someone, there's a different question comes out that brings another memory back to me. And that's what I keep saying to people. It's you enjoyed yourself, and, and I certainly did. And if we can talk about it and reminisce and enjoy and talk and, you know, laugh and joke about the good times. Yeah, there was bad times in football. But for me, the good times far outweighed the bad times at Everton. And I look back with an immense amount of satisfaction and pride that I was able to be part of what ever, ever, everyone says was the greatest team ever ever seen. Um, it's nice to be labelled with that with that tag, but I just hope we're the second best Everton team very, very soon. It means that we've gone to bigger and better things and we, we'll start to winning trophies again. Yeah, here, here. It's about time, eh? I hope so. <laughs> uh, and of course anybody who's listened to this can follow you on Twitter as well can't they at Degsy Mount yeah at Degsy Mount same as Instagram's the same uh, I don't do an awful lot of tweeting uh, I do a lot of retweeting half the time but uh, I will put things up now and again and if you put this on I'll certainly retweet it and everyone can have a listen to it thanks for listening to What Happened to You You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYpod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.